Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Today, we're going to be talking with David Rubenstein, who cuts across all of those sectors. He's the uh, co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group. He's also uh, the chairman of both the Kennedy Center and the uh, Council on Foreign Relations. He just stepped down as head of the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, he's an educational leader. He's an author. And I have to add, he's become one of the nation's great interviewers. Uh, he used to have a show on uh, Bloomberg called Peer to Peer, but they more appropriately renamed it the David Rubenstein Show. So, David, welcome to our show. Looking forward to talking with you. Thank you very much, Dan, for inviting me. And for everybody who's watching, um, I knew Dan uh, many years ago because as a young White House aide under Jimmy Carter, now 40 plus years ago, Dan came down after he had started the Harvard Energy Project to advise us on energy. And had we listened to Dan then, I think we'd be in better shape than we turned out to be. But Dan, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's, it's a pleasure. So, David, uh, yes, I do remember that. That was a few energy crises ago. Uh, where I thought I'd start is uh, in 1987, when you co-founded the Carlyle Group, had you ever heard the term private equity? Did it exist yet? It actually did not. In those days, there were buyout firms. The phrase private equity had not yet been invented. There were about 250 venture and buyout firms in the entire world then. Today, they're probably 8,000 to 9,000. So it was a different industry. And uh, when I started Carlisle in 1987, I did it in Washington because that's where I happened to live. And if I'd gone to New York where the investment bankers would have made fun of me, I didn't, didn't think that would work. So I recruited people that actually had finance background, though not buyout background. And we started with $5 million in 1987. And today you have some, well over $200 billion under management. That's correct. So how would you, in a very simple, just a couple of words, just define private equity? People hear the term, a lot of them don't exactly know what it means. Private equity is a concept under which you are investing theoretically to get a rate of return. In other words, in the historically, over the previous hundreds of years, people who had companies would buy something and they would add it to the existing company and the, the, the company would become bigger. Uh, this is a business where you're investing typically for third parties their money, you're trying to get a certain rate of return that's higher than they could otherwise get, and you're going to exit the investment in three, four, five, or six years. So while you want to make the company better and help your economy that you're living in, you are driven principally by the rate of return that you're trying to get, which is different than what happened before private equity was really invented. And private equity is designed to get a very high rate of return. So, David, uh, as you say, the number of private equity firms of one kind or another has gone way up, while the number of publicly traded companies has gone way down. What's going on? Well, about 20 years ago, we had about 7,200 publicly traded companies in the United States on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. Now we have about half that many, about 3,600. Why is that? Well, being public is more expensive than it used to be, a lot of regulatory requirements. Secondly, you have a lot of activist investors who make life more difficult. And third, I think many people recognize you don't need to go public anymore in order to get capital. The theory behind going public was you've got capital to grow your firm. But with so many private equity firms out there willing to take minority stakes, not necessarily control stakes, you can get money to grow your company and keep going without having to go public. Well, so David, with the number of companies that Carlyle has, which I think 
is something over 400, not including the real estate uh, investments, gives you a very broad view. Carlisle is a very global company. What do you see the global economy? How does it how does it look to you? Well, there's no doubt we're in a recession in the United States, and I think more or less in Europe as well. Uh, and some parts of the emerging markets are in, in recession now. I think China is not in a recession. But I do think this is probably caused by a couple of things. The pandemic is the obvious uh, precipitating factor. But in the United States, we haven't had a recession for 11 years. Typically, we have one every seven years. So we've gone a long time, and the business cycle might have been ready for one, but the pandemic pushed it into the re- into recession. I think we're going to be in a recession for a, quite a while because while technically we'll get out, maybe by the third or fourth quarter, because you get out typically if you're just growing more than you did the previous quarter, but we, we are not likely to get back to where we were um, before the recession for a couple years. Typically, in a recession, it takes about – three years to go back to where you were at the peak before you went into the recession in terms of, of, of the size of the economy. We might take a little bit longer now because this pandemic is so deep and, and, the, and the recession is so deep in terms of unemployment. We now have 30 plus million people unemployed in the United States, whereas before we had about three and a half percent unemployment. So it's going to take a while for the economy to come back. And I want to remind everybody that might be listening that when the economy comes back, it's going to be a different economy. The world has changed. It's changed forever. We have people who are not going to go back and get hired again because many of the employers don't think that they need as many people as before. Many employers are nervous about when the recession will really be over, so they're going to hire gingerly back their employees. But also many people are going to be working from home in the future. And many companies realize they can be more efficient by having people work at home. They're not going to need as much office space, perhaps. And I think there was going to be less travel than there was before. So the business that we go back into, the business environment, was going to be much different than the business environment all of us have been used to over the years. Dan, you and I have probably logged more miles than mostly anybody in the United States because you go around the world talking about energy and learning about energy and writing about energy, and I've been doing the same in private equity. In the future, I suspect many of us will be able to do things by uh, Zoom, and we won't need to travel quite as much. Well, I was going to ask you, bad. I mean, as I recollect, you used to travel about 300 days a year. What do you think you're going to go down to 250 or – well, I, I kind of been wondering about that. You know, if, did I waste a lot of my life by traveling around when I maybe could have figured out a technology way not to do so? But in the end, it's already time spent. I, I'm happy that I did it. I made a lot of contacts around the world. And maybe once you're reasonably well known, you don't have to travel as much. In the private equity world, I've often said that one of the strange things about it is that technology has not taken over, at least in terms of the fundraising. For example, if I've gotten uh, investments for 11 straight years out of Abu Dhabi or Singapore, when I try for the 12th year, I have to go back and physically meet the same people I've already known for 11 years. They know me. I don't have anything to say in person that I wouldn't say on a screen, but it's the idea of showing up. If you don't really show up, people say, well, you really don't care. Whether that will be necessary to do in the future, I don't know. I'm hopeful that I won't have to travel as much. On the other hand, I secretly actually like traveling, so I'm not sure which way yeah, I can I mean, this. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't have done 300 days a year, right. I, I think. But let's go back then to the view that you have of the global economy. We have basically almost zero interest rates. Does that bode trouble down the road in terms of uh, debt levels? And, uh, you know, normally one would worry about zero interest rates. There's a person who used to be the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Richard Nixon. His name was Herb Stein. And he said, if something can't keep going on forever, eventually it won't. Well, you can't have free money forever. It's just at some point you're going to get bubbles 
you're going to get assets at such high inflated values that something is going to go wrong. So at some point, I think we will have to have higher interest rates. But right now, the U.S. government, as well as European governments and other governments around the world, are afraid of the economic consequences of having higher interest rates. So they've been basically artificially keeping it down. I don't know how much longer that can continue. It is a problem, though, down the road, because when the world does come back, we were going to have we're going to have a lot of debt. For example, in the United States, uh, when we started this country many hundreds of years ago, we actually had debt. We had about 70 million dollars left over from the Revolutionary War. And pretty much every year since then, with a few exceptions, we've had some debt. But it has skyrocketed over the last 10, 15 years. So when I left the White House under Jimmy Carter, the total indebtedness of the United States was under one trillion dollars. Today, it's $26 trillion. And so our debt, our debt, our deficit this year is going to be about $4 trillion deficit out of an $8 billion, $8 trillion uh, budget. So who's going to pay for that? Well, Dan, you have two children and I have three children and our children and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren are going to pay for it. There's no way that we're going to be paying for it because it's going to take a while to be paid off. To be very serious though, we can afford right now to pay this, the interest on this debt because the interest is almost zero. But when interest rates go to a normal rate, and when interest rates are 1%, 2%, 3%, or 4%, which is more normal uh, over the current course of history, it's going to be very expensive. So if you have, for example, right now, uh, we're annually borrowing, probably continue in the future, let's say 3 to $4 trillion a year. Um, if, the, if the interest rate is almost zero, it's not that expensive. But when that goes to, let's say, 4% interest rate, that's going to be very expensive. It's going to squeeze out other parts of the budget, the defense budget, and particularly the entitlements program. So at some point, the budgets are going to have to be reshifted. Uh, the government of the United States has said, and President Trump said when he was running, I'm not going to touch his next Social Security or the entitlements. That's now 60-some percent of the budget. So if you don't touch 60% and you don't touch defense, in fact, you increase defense, you have very little money left to deal with, and you got to pay interest as well. So um, it's going to be a challenge at some point. I'm hope I'm hopeful that I'm alive to see it, even though I won't be that pleasant to live through it. But I I, I suspect it'll be five to 10 years before we really see the economic consequences of all the money we're borrowing. Another aspect you talked about, the amount you traveled, all the colleagues, how we became this very globalized world, interconnected world, even if a lot of it was showing up. Um, what's happening to globalization? In a way, a lot of what Carlisle is a global firm developed in this globalized era. I mean, is it fragmenting? Is it going backwards? The theory of globalization, which I would say has came into its strength maybe within the last 10 or 15 years, is that if you have a global economy, it's going to be good for everybody. Products can be made cheaply in China. They can be bought by good, wealthy consumers in, in the United States. Uh, the United States, we, we borrow a lot of money. The Chinese can recycle money and buy our debt, things like that. And you have a supply chain where the lowest cost provider, wherever that might be in the world, can provide the products and therefore saving on inflation and saving on uh, expenses for people that buy those products. That has worked reasonably well for the elites of the world. The elites of the world, of which I would say you and I are probably two of them at this point, have probably benefited from globalization. We can go anywhere in the world. We can invest anywhere in the world. We can uh, get products anywhere in the world. But if you are in the underclass, those people that are not benefiting from this, this has been harmful to you. And politically, it's been very difficult for some politicians to defend globalization. I think President Trump was elected in part because there is resentment by people who've lost their jobs in some parts of the United States because of lower cost providers, sure. let's say, in Asia. Sure. So, so it's, it's been helpful to some people politically to, to run against it. 
But as a deglobalized world, are you going to have the same growth rates? Are you going to still lift many, many people out of poverty if, if globalization sort of breaks up? Well, globalization has been helpful. Now, the Chinese have taken about 700 million people out of poverty uh, over the last, let's say, decade or so. And I think to some extent that was helpful by helped by globalization. There may have been other factors as well that Chinese changed the way they, they operate. There's no doubt that poverty has been reduced by globalization. On the other hand, some parts of the world have not been helped by it. Uh, some parts of the world regard globalization as Americanization, even though ironically people in the United States who are often unemployed because of cheaper products made in Asia or elsewhere don't feel globalization's helped them. I think globalization has been overall a plus for the global economy, but it's been a plus for, you know, some percentage of the seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth. Not for everybody. We still have about a billion people, billion and a half living in poverty or the equivalent in, in this world. So they haven't benefited. Of course, you raise the question of China and what's a, much at the heart of this struggle over globalization is the relationship with China. And, uh, you've spent a lot of time in China. Last three or four years, suddenly this emergence of this great strain in this relationship. How do you assess it? Is it something that's just going to get worse? And how risky is it? And how manageable is it? The U.S.-China relationship is without doubt the most important bilateral relationship in the world. We are the two biggest economies uh, in the world and the two biggest, I think, political power, geopolitical powers as well. Now, throughout the course of history, over the last 500 years or even a 1,000 years, it's never been the case that the two biggest geopolitical powers and the two biggest economic powers got along swimmingly. They're always competing with each other. Uh, fortunately, in recent times, we have not been competing militarily in a direct sense. There's obviously some cyber warfare going on, but in a direct military confrontation, you could argue we really haven't had that more or less since uh, the Vietnam War and the Korean War. To some extent, the Chinese may have been somehow supplying uh, the Vietnamese and the Koreans, but and, and they did provide troops in Korea. But but and generally, I would say we've avoided military confrontation. I think that will continue. But also, I think the Chinese are now saying, wait a second. We're going to be the biggest economic power in the world. We're the second biggest now, and we want the geopolitical and other benefits associated with it, and we don't want to be seen as under the thumb of the United States. The United States, by contrast, is saying since World War II, we've been the dominant power in the world, and we kind of like being the dominant power in the world, and why all of a sudden are we less significant than we were before? Nobody that has power likes to give it up, and people that feel they should have power want to get it, and they think they've earned it. So you have that tension, and I, I think it's going to go on for quite some time. Well, if you were called back to the White House, this administration, another administration, uh, to uh, help resolve it or solve it, are there certain things you could point to that would uh, help manage this complex relationship? Well, first, I would say that the Chinese should recognize and American people should recognize between now and the time of the election, the bashing of China is going to be unbelievable because Donald Trump has concluded, it appears, that beating up on China on COVID or other things or Hong Kong is a good thing. And the Democrats have their real concerns about human rights and other things that Chinese have done. So they're going to beat up on China as well. I would discount much of what you hear in the campaign. Then after the election, I would say I would bring together the, the next president of the United States and the president of China for a serious summit, which tried to address some of these issues. Uh, that that exists. But it's going to take a period of time. You don't get into a, a problem uh, overnight and you don't get out of it overnight. But the best way to avoid long term mistrust is continuously talking. And I think we have to continue continuously have dialogue with the Chinese. That would be helpful. We've been talking now about global politics, global economics. Let's turn to one thing is obviously COVID uh, just 
pause on that for a little more. You're very close friends with uh, Anthony Fauci, who's become probably the most famous doctor in America, and to what's happening uh, with vaccines and so forth. What kind of expectation do you have for where we go with the disease? It clearly has had a an effect that is so complicated and so difficult that we've had this pandemic, many people have died, and so forth. I am reasonably optimistic that a virus uh, vaccine will be developed. There are roughly 130 companies today around the world working on virus uh, vaccines. Uh, many of them are using traditional techniques like the polio vaccine, which is basically dead or inert viruses from live situations where you already had the polio disease or polio vaccine or polio va- virus, I should say. But this is a situation where uh, we have to recognize that traditional virus uh, vaccines take roughly four to seven years to develop uh, and, and perfect. The quickest ever was four years for the mump vaccine. The Salk vaccine against polio took seven years. We don't have four or seven years. So the U.S. government has decided to accelerate this process by picking five companies out of the 130 that are doing this around the world and having them use a new technique that they've developed, the companies developed, which is essentially an artificial uh, way of, of solving the problem, which is to say you have artificially created, let's say, what's called a messenger DNA or, or, and you insert this messenger RNA, I'd say messenger RNA, you insert this, this synthetic um, uh, material into uh, the human body, and it hopefully will have the antibody reaction that you would get. Uh, we don't know if it'll work, but the U.S. government has now put so much money into these five companies that they are not only developing the vaccine, but they're also producing it. Because we, when they, one of those five works, if one of the five works, we want to have the vaccine available. I suspect by the end of this year, one of those five will have produced a vaccine that works and there will be opportunities for those people to get uh, the the vaccine. But it's going to take a lot of time to get it distributed because we have seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth. And so it's going to be hard to get everybody uh, the vaccine. But I do think that we'll have a billion or so uh, vials of this vaccine by the time we're ready to say which one works. And it could be more than one works. It could be one or two synthetic things work. So I'm optimistic. On the other hand, people should recognize two things. Viruses often um, change. They, they, they mutate. And it could be that this virus that we currently have, COVID-19, could mutate and it could be COVID-20 or COVID-21. And so we have to get a new uh, vaccine. Uh, just like every year we have a flu vaccine that's different than the previous year because each of these flus are different than the previous one. And it's another factor people should recognize is that this is going to continue for some time because of the zoonotic uh, impact of these animals. You have what an author, David Quammen, has called the spillover. Spillover means increasingly because humans are interacting with animals more and more, we're likely to have more and more of these kinds of things. We have seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth, as I said, and we are doing more mining, more deforesting, more farming than ever. And we interact with animals. We also have wet markets in places like China or other parts of Asia where live animals are there. And sometimes, you know, things escape from them. And it's so it's a problem. And this is not going to go away in our lifetime. Well, David, let me turn now to some of the things that you are doing in other aspects and parts of your life. One is that you, uh, you're very well-known philanthropist, but you've a lot of, you do a lot of things in philanthropy. Well, one of them is patriotic philanthropy. Can you explain what that is and what your objective is and how that's changing? Yes, I was an original signer of the Giving Pledge, and that means I'm committed to giving away at least half my net worth, but I actually try to give away all of it. Um, I've given my children a very good education, but I don't want to burden them with too much money. They may or may not agree with it, that point of view, but I don't think people inherit billions of dollars 
all of a sudden do great things and win Nobel Prizes. So I think a reasonable amount of money is appropriate and a good education and loving and care uh, for your children is good, but giving them too much money may not be a good thing. So I've decided to give away the money and I give it away to medical research and education and so forth. That's the bulk of my money. But I, I've been focused on an area that I call patriotic philanthropy, which is to remind people of the history and heritage of our country. And it's true, you can do this of any country, because I don't think people know the history and heritage. And the theory is, if you don't know the history of your country, you might be condemned to relive the mistakes of the past. So I want to remind people of the good and bad. And recently, we've learned that there are some great people who helped our country get off the ground, like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, but they were slave owners. And how do we assess the slave owning aspect of their lives versus the good things that they did? Get the country off the ground, create the, the Declaration of Independence. So it's a complicated issue, and we're obviously struggling with that in terms of monuments and memorials right now. But what I've been trying to do is let people know more about the history of this country. And one of the things that makes me nervous is this. If you want to be a citizen in this country and you're born elsewhere, you can be a citizen after five years of residence here, and then you take a test. You have to take you know, 100 potential questions. You're given 10 at the actual test. You have to get six of them right, six out of 10. Things like who's the first president of the United States? How many branches of government are there? Not that difficult. The same test was given recently to 41,000 Americans who were born in this country. And in 49 out of 50 states, a majority of citizens failed that test. In other words, in the majority of states, like other than Vermont, every state, the majority of citizens couldn't pass the basic citizenship test, which shows you that people don't know the history, the civics, how the government works. And then why is this important? Well, the, the theory behind representative democracy is that you have an informed citizenry that knows what's going on, can vote for intelligent people, and can actually be involved in government. If you don't have an informed citizenry, hopefully uh, you can avoid doing that problem. But if you don't have an informed citizenry, you're likely to have a lesser government. Right. So in a sense, what you're doing with your patriotic philanthropy is really it's a form of education. That's correct. Um, and my, my view on this is... Uh, is pretty well known, which is that you, when you get your college and graduate degrees, that's the beginning of your education, not the end of it. A uh, 30% of people who graduate from college in this country never read another book in their life. Never read another book in their that's life because they're news. educated. That's bad news. The most valuable um, muscle you have in your body is the brain. You've got to exercise it. Just like you exercise your biceps, you've got to exercise your brain. The best way to exercise it is reading or learning a foreign language or learning a musical instrument, doing something that makes you want to think. And I think reading books is an important thing. It is amazing that in this country, sadly, in the United States, 14% of adults are functionally illiterate. They can't read at all. We have 33 million Americans who can't read at all past the fourth grade level. That's not a good situation. Well, I'm going to come back to books in a minute, but has COVID-19 changed any of the emphasis of your philanthropy? It has in this respect. COVID-19 has had this impact on me. I'm 70 years old. Uh, when I uh, was in the White House, when Ronald Reagan was running against us in 1980, I was 31. And I said, Ronald Reagan, he's 70 years old. He's too old to get out of bed in the morning. He must be in a nursing home. How can he run for president? How can he have the energy? Now, of course, I don't think 70 is quite as old. But and up until recently, I viewed myself as a, you know, aging baby boomer. Now I'm viewed as a senior citizen because COVID-19 has made my life at risk. And so as I look at what I should do with my life, I'm beginning to think that I could die in a you know relatively short period of time. I, I used to think that when you get to be 70, you're probably going to live another 15 years or so. And if you get a medical problem, you can get it fixed and we can extend life for 15 or 20 years for people my age. But this is something that nobody can solve quickly. 
my my age is such that if I get COVID-19, I could be on a ventilator and my family will never get the chance to see goodbye, say goodbye to me. And that therefore it's a way that I view my mortality much more, much differently than I did before. So I am now accelerating my bucket list and trying to get things done. I wanted to do over the next 10 or 15 years, trying to get them done right away. And one of those is philanthropy. And I'm putting more money into food banks and poverty, homeless shelters and, and discrimination kinds of things than I did before. So um, two other things I want to talk to you about. One is uh, your new career, not so new now as an interviewer. And then I want to get back to the subject you just mentioned, books. But um, so, David, you were this major figure in private equity, global economics, global politics and everything. Now you've become this America's favorite interviewer. How did this happen? Well, I don't know that I'm America's favorite interviewer, but, uh, you know, maybe my, my children's favorite interviewer. I don't know. And before my mother passed away, I was clearly her famous, favorite interviewer. But what happened was uh, when people used to, I became the president of the Economic Club of Washington and my job was to get speakers. I, I realized relatively quickly speakers were boring and people were falling asleep. So I decided I would start interviewing them. Maybe it'd make it a little more lively. And the process worked. And then Bloomberg gave me a TV show and it's been syndicated and so forth. And I enjoy it. I, I'd like to. I, I guess maybe I've always liked to interview people and ask questions, and maybe I'm just doing what I've always been doing my whole life, trying to find out information, learn more. And so um, it's been fun for me. I have a technique of doing it. It seems to work. And, and uh, you know, I've been surprised how many people think it's good. And so I have to keep in private equity, though, because as I remind people, there's no carried interest in interviewing. Yeah. Uh, all my carried in, all my interviewing is really done uh, pro bono or uh, any money I might get, I give it to a charity. So I, I have to keep uh, private equity alive, uh, life alive as well. But I enjoy it, and it's. I can ask you. You clearly, you clearly, you clearly enjoy it. You must yes. yes, enjoy it. And I think I've heard you say that. Um, you know, you go to places now, and nobody knows that you're, you're this guy in private equity, but you're you're this celebrity now because you're you're on TV. It is surprising. I spent 30 years in private equity, and you know, I go to private equity conferences. People knew who I was, and maybe in some parts of the investment world or business world. But now I can be walking on the street down in Beijing or in Abu Dhabi, and people come up to me and they say, "Oh, aren't you the famous interviewer?" And we see you on social media all the time, and I I'm shocked. They they have no clue that I'm in a private equity world. Uh, they just think I'm an interviewer. So it is a surprising, but it shows you the power of social media because yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I just, I'm surprised that so many people see it. And of course, it's also in a sense, you're a teacher there because you've, I mean, it's extraordinary the range of people you've had on your show and, and what you brought out in those discussions, both conceptually, but also in terms of uh, the humanity side of it. The other um, activity that you've taken up, you mentioned books before, uh, is as an author, and you have one book that's out called uh, The American Story, another called How to Lead. Uh, first, The American Story, what's the story of The American Story? I wanted to educate members of Congress about history because I thought it'd be nice since they're making the laws, they should know more about American history. So as a way of doing it, I said, I'll host a dinner at the Library of Congress once a month. Only members of Congress can come. They have to sit with people from the opposite party in the opposite house. And I get a great historian like Doris Kearns, good winner, Ron, Ron Chernow or, or David McCullough. And they're interested in hearing this. I give them a nice dinner and I have an interview that I think is interesting. And so I took the best of those interviews, put them in a book called The American Story, and people could see the transcript, uh, edited a little bit. 
And, and, and people seem to like it because it sold reasonably well. And people like to actually hear from the historians themselves. And I have an audio tape of the audio book where you can actually listen to them do the interview. It's not a, a, a third party just doing is there, it. I mean, terrible thing. The hardest thing for writing a book, I find, is writing the introduction and conclusion. Uh, is there a uh, conclusion to the uh, to the American story? Well, the conclusion is that uh, we had a lot of great people help put this country together, but they all had their flaws, and it's important to really know these flaws. So when I was a little boy, I would say George Washington was great. Uh, how could he not you know, be great? He started the country. But when you get to read more about him, you realize while he had great features, he had you know, challenges too, like everybody. It is said that nobody is a hero to their valet. Well, when you get up close and see any great person, you see their flaws, and I think it's good to know the good and the good and the bad. The, the other book that I have coming out in September, which is coming out, fortunately, two weeks before your book is coming out. So I know I have to sell every book I'm going to sell before your book comes out, because when your book comes out, nobody's going to buy my book. Um, no, but, I, I'll mention your book on every book tour I do. Dan, okay. I this book is uh, How to Lead. And basically, it's my Bloomberg interviews where I have the great leaders of our, our world and that, I, that I've interviewed. So Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Colin Powell, David Petraeus, Jim Baker, you know, people like that. Are, are, uh, there, are, there, are there some common themes that you conclude yes. about leadership that whether you're a private sector or a public sector? Yes. One, uh, you have to have some luck. Two, hard work works more than luck. So you have to work hard. Three, you have to know what you want to do and take yourself somewhere and take your followers there. You have to want to be a leader. You have to be not afraid of failing. You have to focus on one skill so you really have one skill perfected. You have to learn how to communicate, learn how to talk orally uh, well or write well or lead by example. You have to have um, integrity. The best leaders have integrity. Obviously, some people are not honest, get to be in senior positions, but that's not as good. And then I think humility helps. Some leaders can become very famous, but they're not, they're arrogant. But I think the best leaders are people that have some humility to them. And I think in the end, uh, you have to want to give back to society. You're not doing this only to make yourself famous or rich, but you're doing this because you want to do something more significant with your life than just, you know, making money. What about the ability to kind of connect with people or communicate with people? Does that come through? Yes. Um, if you want to really uh, be a leader, you have to know how to communicate with people. All of life, all of life is trying to persuade people to do what you want because nobody can do anything by themselves. Even Einstein's uh, had to convince people that E equals MC squared. He had to be persuasive. So you have to figure out how to communicate, and there are three ways to do it. So I mentioned, one, you learn how to write well in a convincing way. Two, you learn how to communicate well. So you can be a great writer like uh, you know Ernest Hemingway, uh, and be very influential, or you could be a great communicator like John Kennedy or Martin Luther King. But the most effective way is to lead by example. When George Washington was with the, the troops in Valley Forge in 1777, he could have stayed at a Ritz-Carlton or a Hyatt down the street, perhaps. But he said, no, I'm going to stay with my troops to show I am really one of them. And that's a very effective way. Leading by example is the most effective way to, to get things done. So you and your colleagues built uh, Carlisle from nothing into a great global firm. I mean, did you know all these leadership things or how have, what, have, what have you learned about leadership just in your own personal experience? Well, I've learned that uh, I wasn't a great leader. I've gotten a little bit better. But my theory, which I describe in my book, is this. You divide life into three parts. The first third, the second third, and the third third. In the first third, you often have people who are Rhodes Scholars, White House fellows, Supreme Court clerks, student body presidents, uh, big men on campus in terms of athletic skills. I wasn't any of them. 
And so my theory is that those people in the first third often don't make it to the second and third third as leaders. The leaders in the second and third third are people that say, well, I'm not good in the first third, but I can keep working hard. And like the tortoise and hare, I'll get there. And by the second third, you get to be better. By the third third, you get the benefits of it. So I, I try to tell people all the time, if you're not a superstar when you're in your first third, no, no problem. You can work out and keep working hard. You'll get there. If you are a superstar, you got to realize that you might be um, thinking you can coast the rest of your life. And if you coast the rest of your life, you're going to be working for people who are not the stars in the first third, but people you you know, now are going to have to work for because they worked harder than you did in the second and third third. Well, David, uh, you've been a great leader in the global economy, in our national life, in the international community, in education and philanthropy. And uh, so you've really demonstrated uh, leadership across the spectrum. And we thank you very much for joining us for this uh, exceptional conversation today. Thank you, David. My pleasure, Dan, and thank you for being the leader you are. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sierraweek.com.